Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Horn Notes podcast. This particular edition is a combination of three episodes that were originally released separately on YouTube, talking with Dr. Peter Iltis about the MRI Horn Project. All the content is still there, but we just I've just combined it so it all flows as one extended podcast. So enjoy this special episode, and thank you for listening, and if you have, have a second, also check the website of Horn Notes Edition, which is the official sponsor of the Horn Notes podcast. Thank you. So our guest today for the Horn Notes video podcast is Dr. Peter Iltis. Welcome. Well, thank you. Nice to be here. Um, in recent years, he's been a principal investigator for some very exciting MRI studies of horn playing, which are now part of a growing series on YouTube, and he's professor of kinesiology and horn at Gordon College. So to begin, I know that some of your earlier research started focused on uh, movement disorders, such as focal task-specific dysphonia in musicians. That's correct. And I've had a suspicion for years that part of the problem for hornists with dystonia issues is that they were influenced unduly by visualizations heard from teachers or read in books rather than playing with a physiologically correct approach. Mm-hmm. What have MRI studies opened up in this regard? Well, we're really at the very beginning stages of that, John. Uh, we're doing studies which are basically comparing elite horn players to horn players with dystonia. One of the things that my colleague in Germany at the Institute of Music Physiology and Musicians Medicine, Dr. Eckhart Altenmüller, proposes is that musicians' dystonia in brass players probably doesn't just involve the muscles of the embouchure, but also may very well involve tongue and muscles of the throat as well. So the question becomes, how do you start studying this? If all you do is use this RT, real-time MRI technology, to look at dystonic players, then you really don't know what to compare it to. What's normal, what's optimal, or is there even such a thing? So I think uh, the original intent was to do comparative studies looking at what elite performers do, making some basic assumptions. Those assumptions being... They play beautifully, they have long-lasting careers, and they've probably learned a few tricks that help them to do well. So what do they do, and can we find patterns then that typify their behavior? I'll stop there and let you continue. Well, yeah, I mean, this is like leading into all kinds of interesting stuff. That's where where you've gone with these studies, and there's so much potential to go further. And just like on my own end of this too, my actual doctorate's in brass pedagogy. I'm, and I've been really interested for years in, in some of the stuff in horn text that you really you look at it and you can only really describe it as a visualization. Mm-hmm. That's probably maybe sort of helpful, but maybe not. And it, it's something you have to be very careful about. Yep. Um, so, so I've got a few topics um, that I'd like to kind of talk through sure. as, as part of our conversation here, I'm kind of looking at these things. So um, and without intending to be real controversial mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. I've drawn my topics um, for this conversation from the Bible. Yeah. That is, The Art of French Horn Play by Philip Farkas. Of course. Uh, which is a classic book, and I don't mean to trash the book. It has so much interesting stuff in it. But there are some flaws in the book um, in terms of some specifics that, that really are worth kind of, kind of you know, considering directly yeah. as, as horn players. So to start, I have a topic that your studies may not have actually looked at yet. Yeah, go ahead. So this may just be a direction, but one of his big topics has to do with mouthpiece pressure. Oh, boy. And I I kind of think that a lot of people are trying too hard to play with too little pressure based on 
what they've read in the book. Have you gotten to that topic yet, or it's it's in the future? Well, about all I could say to you that we've seen on these MRI videos is you can definitely see um, the mouthpiece indentation on the lips itself in a sagittal view or a side view, as we call it. Um, and without question, there there is considerable pressure there with all of our players. You just don't see anybody putting a mouthpiece on lips that don't become somewhat indented. So, I mean, you can see that visually without even using MRI, of course. But in terms of measuring pressure, uh, we have not done anything with that. That would involve uh, another technology that probably wouldn't be compatible with the MRI itself. So, yeah, still, still be some like pressure gauges. On that. But it, it, I think it's, it's a good topic. You yeah. could explore perhaps more. It has been explored in some studies, I know, with trumpets and things. Yeah. Um, so, well, I've got another, like, big topic right away. Years ago, when I was working on some plane problems, yeah. a teacher recommended I look at the point, the section of the Farkas book where he talks about the four points of resistance. Oh, this will be good. So, <laughs> according to Farkas, there are two points that are more or less fixed the horn and the mouthpiece taken together, mm -hmm. and the lip aperture, what he calls the lip aperture, mm -hmm. and two points of resistance that are controllable, the base of the tongue, back where you say K, and the voice box or larynx. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, he did not have benefit of MRI technology, so right. how much of this did he get right? Well, um, the first thing is we got to be careful that it's the larynx. That's what we call this thing. And Larynx. Yeah, Sorry, I'm, I'm okay. from Kansas. I pronounce things funny sometimes. No, I don't no. like to say French words at all. Yeah. So, we actually have done a fair amount with this. And um, in my last visit, which was only two weeks ago, uh, we really fine-tuned our ability to study some of these things. So let me talk to you about what we have as unpublished data. Uh, fact is, I may not even be presenting this in New York next week, but basically we looked at both. I had a phone call from a student, Sarah Gillespie, who is studying at the University of Wisconsin, and she called along with her uh, horn teacher to ask me some questions about this very idea. How involved might the glottis be in playing? And her approach, as has been the approach, the approach in other, other uh, groups, was to do um, you know, a laryngoscopy, stick a tube down a person's nose with a little camera and have them play, quote, normally while you watch the vocal cords. <laughs> yeah, with, with a thing stuck down your right, nose. Right, and while you're Like tagging. you could play normally. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was, I was very reticent to, to, to support that idea. I don't think it's natural. And I had done just enough at the Max Planck Institute to know that there are lots of things that you can look at. And so I told her, let me go and do some experimentation, and I'll see if we can do this with MRI. So um, there's actually a long story here, so I'll tell you just a short part, and then you can probe, I guess, if you want to. My first attempts at this, I was the subject in the chamber, and all I was doing was vocalizing on and off so that I knew the vocal cords were coming together. And we were trying to image in what we call a cross-sectional or a transverse view, actually slicing through the vocal cords like you might see in some of those books in uh, vocal pedagogy uh, where you can see that voice box opening and closing. Well, it turned out that with me, uh, we just accidentally, quite frankly, stumbled onto some pretty good images. And, aha, we've done it. So I uh, invited Sarah to come to Germany 
And she wanted to study this very question. Are the vocal cords or the glottis, is the glottis involved? So she came, and the first couple of days that we were there, we tried to image her and a couple of other subjects that we had there. And simply put, when you align an MRI scanner, the, the, the plane of scanning that you do is very narrow. It's maybe three, four millimeters in thickness. So if there's any upward or downward movement of the larynx, you're going to have the structure moving in and out of focus. And we just, this was absolutely prohibitive. We, we could not get that to happen because she wanted to study the involvement of the cords on different notes. And the larynx moves up and down clearly on different notes despite everything you might have read. So with that in mind, we had to find another way to do it, and I can tell you more about that. But if you have a question about what I've just said, let me go ahead and give you a chance to ask. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I mean, it's a big topic, and it's, it's the sort of thing to a point, I know just from a teaching angle, yeah. some people you do have to talk about this with, yeah. but you kind of don't want to because then they start thinking about mm -hmm. it too much, mm -hmm. and then it's like all this, this stuff, like, wait a minute, I'm trying to, blah, 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 you know, right. but, but I, I think the underlying thing is there's like a, you know, people will say, don't do blah, 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 but actually there's a lot happening yeah. that is, you're so, um, uh, what's the term? There's a term like that. I, I often, I, I tell people like, uh, to do as an example, they, to play their horn normally, put their normal hand in the bell, yeah. then switch the horn around the other way and put your wrong hand in the bell. Yeah. And you can feel the sound waves, you can feel the air hmm. on your left hmm. hand, but you can't feel it on your right hand, even though it's happening all the time. Because you're so used so to I, it. So I think that's like there's like what's happening inside these structures. Sure. You know, we're, there's there's we have no real sensation of it. Yeah. Well, so let me let me let me clarify then what we moved ahead with and tell you that actually I think we learned a lot and are still learning a lot. Um, so the problem we had, as I said, was being able to keep these things in the plane of focus of the MRI scan. So yeah. I stayed up most of the night one night just looking at anatomical drawings and trying to think about other ways to do it. And very briefly, what we came up with was what is called a coronal section. Uh, as an example, if you were to take a big blade and you were to slice down through the top of your head and divide it into front and back halves, and that's kind of a gross image. Peel that away, and you can see structures that you're looking end-on at as opposed to in cross-section. Well, the vocal cords run anatomically anteriorly to posteriorly. They hook up on the backside of the, of the larynx, at the top of the larynx. So we basically found a way to slice down through not so much the vocal cords, but the arytenoid cartilages, which sit at the very back of the vocal mechanism. These are what the cords are attached to. And there are very beautiful muscles that close and open those arytenoid cartilages, moving them in and out. And, of course, that's what moves the vocal cords in and out. We found very, very nice images of these in the coronal plane, and we therefore could then do some measurements with people actually speaking and playing their horns. And I can tell you right now... Um, a lot of people aren't going to be happy <laughs> because what we found uh, well, it quite supports some of Farkas's ideas, which I, I always, frankly, did believe from my own experience, John, as a player. But um, what did we do? Well, we looked at different things. We looked at playing high notes. We looked at playing low notes. We looked at playing soft notes. We looked at playing loud notes. We looked at different combinations of loudness and highness and softness and lowness. 
we looked at staccato playing. Uh, we looked at note changes. And in these films, um, in our first run with Sarah Gillespie's subjects, we got some pretty conclusive images that are showing that the vocal cords are very much involved in all of these activities, John. Um, I have to tell you that from a quantitative point of view, as, as I began to analyze these data, it was fine for her dissertation, but in terms of the scientific rigor that we could apply to the numbers and things that we were seeing, there were some technical difficulties, but conclusively, movements are occurring, and we can talk about what those looked like, if you'd like. Oh, yeah. Well, here, let's, uh, this, this is getting into the topic of tonguing, which I'd like to get into more in okay. part two here, sure. so let's take a little break here. Sure. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Peter Iltis, principal investigator of the MRI horn studies, we get to the topic of tonguing. And, and first off, I have a uh, sort of a side point, but it relates to this. For slurs, Farkas says a smooth legato was made with the lips while the air remains steady. Mm -hmm. However, just from the, the videos I've seen, it's clear that the tongue has a bit of motion between notes on legato notes. Um, how common is this? And I've been aware of this personally for years, but I've never seen this mentioned in any brass text. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at, look at this. Uh, one would be to look at slurs between notes and how you move through the harmonic series, say. We've done quite a bit of imaging with that. And uh, conclusively, the tongue pulsates. It pulsates with each note change. And uh, particularly when you get to the upper harmonics, the tongue rises anteriorly and superiorly, up and forward in the mouth. So there's, there's clearly a pulsing that goes on, and, and, and I, would, I would liken these two little boosts of air column that are helping to make the transition. And if you look at yeah. the larynx, you'll find the same thing. There's some movement there. So this notion of a non-dynamic non air column is not correct. It's, it's definitely changing with each note change, John. Yeah, no, it's like you could it'd be impossible actually to to not pulsate just slightly. I know you yeah. don't want to hear like wah wah right. wah, but right. but you really can't blow straight through and just like push a valve down. It just doesn't sound right. Yeah. Um but this gets at so the underlying legatos, you've got this pulsate, I like that word, pulsations of the tongue. Uh -huh. And that gets towards tonguing, yep. which is kind of a, a similar action. Yeah. Um, and now to tonguing itself first, even from the old x-ray videos that have been on YouTube for a while, it's clear the description of tonguing in Farkas is, is really not very correct. He speaks of a common fault, quote-unquote, being the tongue moving forwards and backwards and suggests that a tongue works best by curling the tip up and working in the motion up and down. I believe this instruction has caused problems for people, actually. It, it, it's not very correct, I don't believe, and it's kind of sort of the opposite of what people do, as I'm, as what it seems to me. Yeah. Well, we haven't done any systematic measurements and assessments of tonguing, but I've certainly seen thousands of tongues moving inside people's mouths with these MRI videos. And, and you know, the motion typically is sort of a, an oblique motion where the tongue will go forward and where it contacts the front of the mouth, that might vary a little bit from subject to subject, but I think we're seeing some standard things there. And by the way, my colleague Eli Epstein really wants to look at this closely because, as you know in his book, he talks about different tongue positions relative to the pitch that you're playing. Well, mm -hmm. uh, I'll just preface that study by saying it's not as clear as, as perhaps we have thought in the past, but the point is the tongue moves 
to make contact, usually right behind where the teeth and the gums connect. People have said that for years to varying degrees. And then when it retracts, when it withdraws, it comes down and back. So it's, it's a movement which is not simply up and down, nor is it simply forward and backward. It's a touching with a retraction, where the actual tongue muscle itself moves down and compacts, moving back in the mouth as though you're compressing an elongated structure a little bit. That's pretty much what we see, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now, related to this, now there's a mantra in Farkas to not tongue between the lips. Yeah. Um, but there's another school of thought which says that's fine, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, I think it's kind of context-based as much as anything. Um, uh, what, what observations have you made on that? Well, um, again, with my colleague Eli Epstein, who's very much a proponent of moving the tongue within the mouth to, to tongue different, very in a very restricted way. I've got to be careful how I say that. I don't want to misrepresent him at all. But um, it's clear that uh, the tongue will at times, in some people, move slightly lower and be closer to being between the lips. It, it happens. Or between the teeth is almost rather where I'd like to say it is. And uh, the, the trouble here, John, is that our kinesthetic perception of where our tongue is touching is really, I think, biased by our opinions. If you look, the tip of the tongue is not this discrete little thing that just points and touches at a certain point. It's a mass. The front of your tongue, the entire front of the tongue, uh, in fact, Eli and I have called it the smush of the tongue as it comes forward and contacts either the tongue or the top of the roof of the mouth, wherever it's contacting, it's it's a fairly large area, and you have to yeah think, I've yeah it, it seems to me it's kind of a flat area often well, for people too like the tip is like in a certain place but there's more contact than just the tip definitely it's like definitely contacting across the back of the teeth definitely and when you think about the the neural sensory information that's being processed there um, there's a thing called the, the homunculus which is a map of the brain showing how much of the brain is dedicated to sensory information from the various parts of our body. The tongue has huge representation. And my, my comment would be, you're getting a lot of sensory information from many, many receptors on the tongue that you will interpret based upon what you tend to focus on. So you may think that you're tonguing higher up on the roof of the mouth or lower, but that may simply be where your attention is focused relative to this smush this not flat, but smooshed part of the tongue that's touching. There's a lot more to be done with that, John, and we're going to have some interesting papers to come out on that in the future. Yeah, this this is a big topic because I, I think, again, it's like people hear something on paper and they just, it's not physiological reality, right. and they can kind of get themselves in a loop of, of issues. Yep. Um, related to that, we have the topic of staccato, right. which we were getting on a little bit in part one. So Farkas states that you should never, ever cut off notes with the tongue. Mm -hmm. Which, so, and that's one of those things like, you know, you hear it all the time, but, you know, how, in certain contexts, very fast staccato notes, how else are you going to make it short? I mean, what's, what's the... What's your observation? Well, I think, I think the speed of tonguing makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, um, when you're tonguing extremely fast with single tonguing, absolutely. You have, I always have liked the idea of a flowing stream of water with a knife just kind of cutting across, you know, making those notes stop. I'm sure the tongue is stopping fast staccato notes. I, I can't imagine any other way to do it. 
The staccato notes that we complain about, though, that we hear sometimes, are when the tongue stops the note with just short notes. When you're just doing simple staccato notes that aren't fast. There, we have a lot of choices in my view. Right. To touch. We can use well, the tongue. Well, you were getting at that we, last we, time because the glottis and everything, right? Well, let's just talk about that. Um, again, with Sarah Gillespie, uh, we did some work there in Gettingen, Germany. And... Again, we had a problem because we were looking at staccato notes that were changing. And so we were losing some of that real good resolution to be able to say precisely when things happened. But I can now conclusively say, based upon our improved techniques, that at least with the subjects we've looked at so far, the glottis closes and terminates the end of a short staccato note. It is what happens. And the sound begins with the glottis opening. So there is definite glottal closure that makes it short. And Eli and I have talked about this quite a bit. And, you know, if you just simply say, ta, ta, a short puff of air, you don't keep your throat open and just stop the flow of air. The glottis closes. And so um, I think we've shown this quite clearly, and you'll be getting some reading about that in journals very soon. Yeah, no, this is, is, is what is, has always seemed to me to be is what has to be happening. I, what I felt is you have an ability to shade toward the tongue cutting it off or the glottis cutting it off. Yep. And it's just you're looking for a, mu- a musical result. You're not really thinking it all out right. mechanically. Right. But you definitely get... With the glottis stop, it's softer. Oh yeah. The uh, the end of it because it's further away from your lips. Yeah. And it's just not as uh, exactly. And I yeah. think you know for for uh, beginning students who can have a terrible time with getting a good quality staccato, just this notion of informing them and getting to think about you know you don't have to close your throat, but if you just go t- uh, yeah t- uh, you can tell what's happened and you can feel that. And uh, anyway, it's been been interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, as a final little uh, tonguing point here, just for anybody watching, uh, Farkas does not address multiple tonguing, but obviously your MRI videos right. do, and I just highly recommend anyone interested check out those videos yeah. to see and get some more about that. Um, got a few more things I'd like to talk about. We'll go to a part three for those. Okay, today we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Peter Iltis, who's principal investigator of the MRI horn studies. And our topic we get to now in this part three is range, uh, which is a huge topic for a lot of players. Um, Farkas, in the Art of French Horn Playing, spends a great deal of time with the muscles of the lips, Mm -hmm. but almost nothing on tongue position and vowels. And here's where my own studies helps, uh, because among my teachers was Eli Epstein, who You've worked with, obviously, on this series, and at that point in the time, it was in between my master's and doctorate. His pedagogy at that point was the mid-range was, well, the high range was T, the mid-range was TA, the low range was TO, and he's modified that and expanded it, I guess, in his subsequent pedagogy. I think this holds up pretty much with what you've seen in your MRI study. Yeah, sure does. Um, Actually, I have to tell you a little background story on that. I I did not like, (laughs) I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. I never really agreed with the vowels that he used in his book, in his first book. Ho is, is a sound that you make largely by dropping your tongue, but also by shaping your lips. And shaping your lips has nothing to do with tongue position. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, he's, he's modified it now. So it's ha, ha, he, he. Those are the ones that he now puts forth and will be in his third edition. I think there's one that he's left out. I've mentioned it. But I think ha, 
ha, he, he. He is somewhere between he and he. It's another, just another movement, but again, it's a very small movement. But yeah, these these vowel positions we have verified. Um, they're not, they're not per, there's not perfect confluence between saying vowels and playing horn, but it's really close. And oh yeah, yeah it's, it's been really, really an amazing discovery and uh, confirmation. For yeah, you. no, because and it's something important just to publicize a lot because there's there's people I'm sure struggling to try to play high with like they're trying to keep really open yeah. or something artificially, and it's just they're causing themselves problems. Right. it's just not what naturally is gonna gonna work. Yep, or they're pinching hard um, with the embouchure or something. Yeah. Yeah, because it's the traditional teaching is very muscle yep. and air, more air. Yep. You know, more air is the solution to everything. Yep. Um, um, going into the low range, uh, which you, you've also you just talked about, it. another topic that Farkas actually leaves pretty open mm -hmm. is jaw position right. and breaking the embouchure. Um, what generalities have you seen among, say, the elite, the really good players? Well, I don't think we've been able to look at embouchure break necessarily, John, but we certainly looked at jaw movement, and that was published in our latest paper. Um, which is published in uh, Medical Problems of Performing Artists, if you're interested. But there we're looking at uh, ascending and descending harmonic series, and basically it's this. When you're playing harmonics that are in the upper part of the range, there's very little jaw movement. Most of what happens there is accomplished with tongue movements. But when you start to go to the last, let's just say from, oh, I don't know, middle C on down, you start to see movements with each, with each harmonic. In fact, even above that. So that there's a progressive and an incremental dropping of the jaw as you go to the lowest partials. Very, very clearly and very consistently in our elite players. Yeah, yeah so I, in relation to that following up, so people, uh, I mean, one thing I do often with people is I have them put their thumb on their jaw just to see what they're doing. Because sure. most people are not actually, do, they think they're dropping their jaw. They honestly believe they yeah. are, yeah. but they're not. Yeah. Um, and then you could drop your jaw in several ways. It seems like it's most people kind of down and out yep. is, is probably the, the way you need to go. I would is say that that's what typical. you observe? Yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's like a, a key thing. You bet. Now, um, now, while we're talking about the uh, the oral cavity, mm -hmm. and here's like a question which you may not have also observed. Uh, did you look at lip bends? at all and like what is a lip bend like how, how is what's the mechanism of a lip bend in shaping on a pitch, note? right you mean bending pitch right yeah like say you take a middle c and you go but it's all in the same fingering right. Like, right 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 that's what i thought down. you meant uh well you don't know we haven't looked at that clearly it's not in the forefront of my mind it would be interesting um I would I would almost bet you that there's tongue movement involved with that, um, but again I haven't looked at it, so maybe that's something we yeah. could add to our protocol. But add it in, I'd be curious yeah. because I think traditionally teachers are thinking it's your lips, yeah, bending it down. But I think it's a combination of maybe somewhat lips, a little jaw, jaw too. and tongue. Yeah, maybe like jaw too. All of those things things moving a little bit. Yeah, yeah, making the the pitch pitch bend and, and ho hopefully find that sort of optimal oral cavity kind of shape okay. but it's a uh, I was curious about that no, I haven't done that. Um, another one that um, was a big topic for Farkas was dynamics yeah um, mm -hmm. he suggests for a great fortissimo the key is that the lips have to be relaxed to form a large lip opening to allow the air through what do you see 
in MRI imagery in terms of dynamics, and especially like going to loud dynamics? Absolutely nothing with respect to what you just mentioned. We aren't looking at lip aperture at all. And uh, frankly, I don't know what I don't know if we could look at lip aperture, but we've certainly looked at two other things that are pretty interesting. One is, again, if you take a coronal slice, slicing down through the head, dividing into the front and left halves or front and back halves, you can look over the surface of the tongue and you can see a channel that's formed between the top of the tongue and the roof of the mouth. That channel is absolutely regulated with different dynamics. At Fortissimo, loud dynamics, it's large, and it's usually larger in the low range on Fortissimo dynamics. So there's a channel that you're unconsciously, most likely, regulating play just by using your tongue muscles. Uh, the other area goes back to this glottis that we talked about. Uh, we have definitely seen that that also serves as a valve to regulate dynamics. And we have some mm -hmm. conclusive pictures about that as well, John. Okay, well, that's like good cutting-edge stuff there. And, yeah, and that's, that's definitely really helpful, I think, too, to people who might be, be struggling about this. Okay, here's my final topic, believe it or not, Okay. for this, this thing. And I know there's a lot of, lot of topics we could go to, but for today, my last one has to do with lip trills. Oh, my. Go ahead. Which I'm very curious about. Now, some teachers claim that the tongue moves on a lip trill, even calling it a tongue trill. Mm. And, but personally, I'm inclined to say in my own case, I feel pretty secure to say the tongue is absolutely still. Okay. And the motion is from my lips. Have you worked on trills yet, or is that certainly, like coming Certainly we have lip trills uh, collected and looked at, but not officially reported on. So, again, a lot of what we're talking about here, John, is just raw observations. I am a scientist, mm -hmm. and we're going we're to be looking at, at quantifying these things and giving them some some heft, you know, some some good scientific heft. But I'm going to talk. I'll be glad to talk about lip trills. Obviously, it depends on the speed that you're doing it. We have we have our subjects, all of them. They do a trill, sixteenth notes at sixty beats per minute, which is quite slow. And there you see the textbook things happening. The ooey that Farkas used to talk about. You can see the tongue actually changing. There's a little bit of even jaw movement in even some of our elite players at that slow speed. When these guys kick it into gear and play as fast as they can, first of all, you can't even see it unless you're filming at 100 frames per second. We've written a paper that showed how important it was to have that high speed. And as far as I know, the guys at the Max Planck Institute are the only ones in the world doing this. So we have a real privilege to use their technology. And I'll tell you this, the tongue's moving. <laughs> it is. Oh, it's oh man. And, and how much is it moving? It's moving hardly at all. This lip trill business is something that's such a mystery to teach. You know, you, you, oh, yeah. Most of us, it, it just, there it is, I got it. You know, all of a sudden I've got it. And it's this indescribable, constant air, high speed, something's going on between our lips, we think. And actually, I'm sure that's true. The physics of it all, I don't understand completely, John, but I'm going to tell you this, that in our fastest lip tilters, for example, Andre Just, uh, Marcus Muscunity, these are European players, the very, very tip of their tongue is moving ever so slightly. And all I can think is that it's somehow upsetting the continuity of that airstream in such a way that it's getting in harmony with some kind of vibrations in the lips. And the physics of that, I, I really want to explore with some people who are qualified to talk about it. But I can tell you, 
The tongue is moving, but it's extremely slight and hardly visible, even at 100 frames per second, John. Hmm. Okay, so it's kind of... Hmm, hmm, it's moving, hmm. John. Well, it'll be a good good area for further study here yeah, anyway. Yeah, sure. Uh, great. So, yeah, so this is a lot of great stuff. And again, I, I should have been plugging on the other episodes. You've got a new YouTube channel up. Right. Um, I'll be linked from the article. Just look for... Um, what's, the, what's the title of the channel? Uh, MRI Horn Pedagogy Informed by Science, I think is the name of it. And uh, oh, I yes, that's correct. Good. I, I wrote it, but I, I, it's pretty new. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about, just real quickly, John, this is a bit of a plug, is that uh, we are, I am lobbying with um, lobbying. I'm working on trying to put together what we're calling the International Horn Repository Project. This um, we find, here's, here's, here's the problem. You get a few elite players, you collect data on them, and you make some wonderful conclusions, and I'm, I'm pretty confident about what we're saying. But I think we need a lot more data, John. And I really think elite players are who we need to study first. And so what I'm proposing is that we have an ongoing, maybe three to four year study with the Max Planck Institute, whereby we bring elite players from all over the world to Getty and to be tested on a very carefully thought out protocol that gets at the questions you've raised, and more. And this is going to be a very expensive endeavor. So we're looking for grant uh, funding for this. I'm actually working with Annie Bosler a little bit, and also um, Sarah Gillespie, as a matter of fact, is going to do some administrative stuff for me on this. So I'd like, I'd like folks to know that that's coming. And quickly, this repository is going to be meant to serve as a place where teachers and students can go to find basically any question they want to know about what goes on inside the mouth and throat about horn playing. How we'll organize that, I'm not totally sure, but it will also serve, John, as a repository for those studying movement disorders like dystonia, a place where doctors and medical people can go to get some good hard data collected very carefully um, to help inform the work that they do. So I'm really excited about this. I think it's incredibly important and It'll be probably on that same site where Eli and I are posting these instructional videos as well, just to let you know. Yeah, no, this is great, and this is all, like, super exciting. I mean, you you know, people think that, uh, you know, we know it all by now, right? Yeah. But actually, there's so many directions. Once you look, there's you find more and more directions to go on all this. So this is what's, like, super exciting. So um, I'll be, again, I'll be super interested to see where this heads. Okay. With everything, definitely keep in touch if you want to talk again sometime about some new topics. Happy to do that. You bet. Um, thank you again uh, to uh, Peter Iltis for joining us for the Horn Notes video podcast. And I'll be checking here for more uh, topics of interest related to all things French horn and the Horn Notes video podcast. Thank you again. You're welcome. And uh, in my own studies, I'll, I'll say just as a digression first, among my teachers was Eli Epstein. Epstein. And um, which is it? I'm going to edit that part. You know, I always say it wrong. I call him Epstein. <laughs> Epstein, okay.